Hello, everyone, and welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought about them. I am your host today. My name is Jacob Coots, and I am joined by my co-host, Grant Vavray. Grant, how are you doing today? Doing a lot better than I thought I would be doing, given that the movie we watched this week was It Chapter 2, and I'm not a fan of Stephen King or horror movies. So <laughs> it took a great deal of convincing to make this happen. Yeah, all things considered, though, I'm doing a lot better than than I would have expected, which we'll talk more about in the review today. Uh, today's show is in two parts, as usual. First will be our trailer section where we talk about some movie news and a new movie coming out that actually is pretty directly related to the movie that uh, we watched this week. And then we'll get into our feature presentation where we're going to go ahead and review the movie, which again is It Chapter 2. So without much further ado, Jacob, let's just get on into it. Well, before we get to our feature presentation, It Chapter 2, we have some lingering movie news to talk about and a trailer that, as mentioned previously, is directly related to the movie we're talking about today but if we're a movie podcast it doesn't seem right to not talk about what happened with spider-man marvel and disney recently yeah kind of big news that it happened a few weeks ago we didn't talk about it for a few weeks because like we mentioned before we like our trailer section to sort of match up with what we're doing and you know it doesn't match up here not a horror thing but they're both big blockbustery kind of things and we definitely just couldn't ignore it anymore well for spider-man fans this is probably as close to horror as you're ever gonna get yeah that's true waking up and seeing that news that he is out of the mcu especially after that cliffhanger they ended the second movie on in the end credits it's gonna be sort of a mess and it doesn't seem like disney really cares we'll talk about that later on but basically if you haven't heard about this Sony and Disney had a pre-existing arrangement for the film franchise rights to Spider-Man. And in this agreement, Disney got what is called first ticket profits. So the first 5% of the movie sales and all of the rights to toy sales. So 5% of the movie, all of the toy profits, and Sony paid for the production of the movie. So they just got the remaining 95% of the box office and then financed the entire film but disney directed it and casted everyone which was a good arrangement it worked very well for two movies they had the highest grossing spider-man movie ever in far from home but and it depends on what source you look at it seems like disney was disney wanted more money So they did not want to re-up the agreement. They didn't want to honor their side. What they wanted to do was split the profits 50-50 and also split the financing. Uh, And Sony said, no, we like money too. And also we're putting in a lot of effort here. We own the film rights to Spider-Man. So they definitely had the upper hand in this agreement. And so when 
Disney wasn't budging, Sony just said, fine, we're just going to leave. We're going to take our character and go home. And they got a lot of flack for that, but really they were fine keeping things as they were. It was Disney that wanted to change things and wouldn't agree to the same deal that they had. So the initial backlash was to Sony. There was the huge hashtag boycott Sony. And then after some more news came out and time passed, people started blaming Disney um, outside of the extreme Marvel Cinematic Universe fans and Disney fans. Both sides were in the wrong here, but I think I side more with Sony, especially because Disney owns everything and they still had a pretty good deal going with Spider-Man. Sony didn't get any profits for Spider-Man's appearances in Infinity War or Endgame or anything like that. Um... So it seemed like it would have been fine, but, you know, the the big hand, the big green hand gets bigger. Yeah, and I mean, you have to bear in mind, too, that the deal Disney had, if they had a, a market share or a lion share, I should say, of the uh, of the toy. A money, spider's share. A spider's share, sure. Of the toy profits. That's that can be a huge deal. I mean, that was something that uh, Sir Alec Guinness Um, I think it was not him specifically, but his agent recommended that they do in terms of his uh, being paid for the original Star Wars movie, because I don't think they had as much money to pay him as he wanted. So him and his agent came up with the idea that his estate, I I believe it was him, got some of the uh, toy rights. And I believe Lucas held on to some of the toy rights as well, even after it was sold to Disney, because those are just massive, massive money makers. And of course, the same can absolutely be true of all the Marvel. So yeah, I don't know whose side is necessarily right. I don't know if there is a right side. I think just a lot of people are looking to find someone or some company to blame because they're upset that a lot of their favorite hero is now no longer in the MCU, at least not for the foreseeable future. They definitely want someone to hang and to blame for it. Again, but both sides are to blame. Uh, If someone needed to be blamed, I'd say it's the side that wanted to change something. But as you mentioned, toy rights are massive. Uh, I mean, there's so many toys that are sold nowadays. And if you even look at Far From Home, they had three different costumes in that film, which seems like, oh, that's cool. He had three different spider suits. That's three different toy lines, even. So it's definitely non-trivial when they include multiple costumes in a film and Apparently that that wasn't satisfactory. I mentioned earlier that it doesn't seem like Disney cares. And from what I understand, they don't seem too upset about Spider-Man leaving. It's almost seemed like they were okay letting him go. At least for now, I think when they see the response, because he was a very well-liked character. Tom Holland was one of the best Spider-Mans we've seen on screen. So it's going to be quite a change. And he wasn't in any immediate plans in phase four but that being said there was uh, some pre-production being done on a spider-man especially again with that kind of sequel the cliffhanger that set up a sequel so i don't know how they're going to handle this there's some jokes being thrown about i know i jokingly texted you watch out for the new marvel franchise night monkey coming out it could be that somehow they find a loophole where because his identity was revealed, he has to change names and identities and go to a different place and be a different version of the hero. I'm sure that would cause some legal ruckus. I, I'm not too 
apt on copyright. But Sony seems totally content also just keeping Spider-Man. They were pretty successful with Into the Spider-Verse. Not fiscally, it was one of the lower grossing or the lowest grossing Spider-Man film. But critically, from fans and critics alike, excellent reception. And Venom 2 had probably a little bit more critical reception in terms of people being nitpicky about it. But it did very, very well at the box office. So to have a Spider-Man vs. Venom movie would probably do very well, as long as they kept Tom Hardy and some character who played Spider-Man. So who knows where this is going to end up? Yeah, and it's interesting because I've heard that they had Sony has some plans for Spider-Verse spinoffs and that they've been talking amongst themselves for Spider-Man. Before any of this was even announced, they were trying to figure out something related to a Spider-Man show and that originally may have involved uh, Marvel and Disney. And I have to imagine that part of the reason that Spider-Man didn't show up in any of the Phase 4 announcements was partly because this was still being discussed and worked out and nobody knew what was going to go on sure sure so it's it'll be interesting to see if they if they do try and make any spider-man movies or tv shows in particular tv shows because it seems like there's a lot of places that spider-man could show up and live except for a streaming platform that sony doesn't currently have and that's going to cause them problems in a multitude of ways especially in the wake of disney plus coming out where all the marvel movies are going to live and then the marvel tv shows like that would have been the perfect place for a spider-man you know, live action show or animated show or a bunch of different movies. And now because Sony doesn't have that, they're going to have to compete not only with Marvel directly, the cinematic universe, but also the Disney Plus universe that's going to be there and all of these other properties that uh, Marvel properties specifically that Disney's going to be putting out in pretty much every vector of attack. Two interesting thoughts on that. I think the first could also be Maybe Disney wanted to change the deal because they wanted TV rights to Spider-Man as well. And that probably could have been the bigger play because it seems like they're putting more resources and perhaps caring a little bit more about their Disney Plus streaming platform. Seems like they're going to start edging, uh, moving away from these blockbusters and more toward a sustainable streaming service. Uh, So I wonder if part of their desire to change was so they could make a tv show about spider-man and also i wouldn't put it past i'm predicting it now and on the internet so i get credit if it counts i wouldn't be surprised if sony pairs with netflix for that Mm -hmm. streaming platform for a show because netflix is going to be taking a major hit from disney plus they're losing all of their marvel content so i wouldn't be surprised to see some kind of joint agreement maybe between those two to air like a Spider-Man, Spider-Verse television series or something of the like. Yeah, that's a good call. Um, I hadn't considered that, but that's a very good idea. And if they haven't thought about that already, maybe they should consider it. But who knows? It's going to be a little while yet before we see what happens. All we know is that for now, according to both Sony and Marvel, Spider-Man is out of the MCU, which they have both said for now. So maybe that'll get turned around. But for the immediate future, it doesn't look like that is the case. Moving on to something a little bit different, though, but a little bit more related to the film that we watched this week. Let's talk about the Doctor Sleep trailer. Doctor Sleep. He's my favorite Avenger. Doctor Sleep. Yeah, it's uh, Doctor Sleep and the Multiverse of Insomnia, I think, is the movie that's coming out. So, uh, <laughs> so Doctor Sleep 
Um, That's good. <laughs> Doctor Sleep is based on a Stephen King novel that was published in 2013, which is ostensibly a sequel to The Shining, his 1977 novel that was made into a into several different films and stage productions and miniseries and I, I think a musical stage production, but. The, the big one that everyone's familiar with is the 1980 film directed by Stanley Kubrick. And it's interesting, this whole story came about because people kept asking King at various events, well, what happened to Danny? Danny being the kid from The Shining that, you know, is terrorized by ghosts or spirits or whatever, the kid that has The Shining. Uh, in the film, Ewan McGregor stars as a grown-up Danny who is not in control of his shining powers. He's actually kind of diluted them with uh, drugs and alcohol, much like his father's alcoholism before it. But it's weird to me because an interesting note is that the shining film is actually rather different from the book and not just like how it has varied from the book, you know, minor ways where it referenced things in the book, just didn't dive as deeply into them. There are whole scenes that are in the film that weren't in the book. There are whole scenes in the book that weren't in the film that kind of shape the characters. For example, sorry, spoilers for a movie and a book that have been out for, you know, 40 years now. In the book, The Shining, the hotel blows up at the end with Danny and his mother escaping and Jack, his father, dying in the explosion, like kind of taking himself with it as he was possessed by the spirit of the hotel, the spirit of the maleficence that resides there kind of thing but in the film that doesn't happen jack freezes to death in the maze outside and we again see the ruins of the hotel in the doctor sleep trailer so i'm interested to see which which universe the film is going to follow i would imagine that it'll follow the film universe however stephen king has himself actually come out and said that it he doesn't like that adaptation i think he has said it's one of his least favorite adaptations of any of his work uh, he actually even mentioned it in the afterword of the Dr. Sleep novel, saying, of course, there was Stanley Kubrick's movie, The Shining, which many seem to remember for reasons I've never quite understood, as one of the scariest films they've ever seen. If you've seen the movie but not read the novel, you should note that Dr. Sleep follows the latter, which in my opinion is the true history of the Torrance family, the Torrance family being the main characters of The Shining. So for him to think that the novel is the true history it'd, it'd be very interesting to see what this film is going to do which universe it follows it will be and it's always interesting to hear that he doesn't really like this adaptation because it did very well it was highly reviewed and as he said many people viewed it as a, a terribly scary film very iconic the scenes of the twins and here's johnny it, it's noted by a lot of people as being one of the top hundred films of all time in, in a lot of those movie lists. Mm -hmm. So it's, I mean, I guess that's a great place to be. One of your most hated renditions of your work is one of people's highest rated movies of all time. I, I don't know. I always think Stephen King is kind of like the modern Edgar Allan Poe, very bizarre and dark work that I don't quite understand the love for. I do like some of it and I, I appreciate the effect he's had on the horror genre as a whole. That being said, I and I'll talk about this in the review this year, at least the movies that have dropped this year of his, I, I haven't been overly fond of. Uh, that being said, I just didn't even know that this movie was coming out for a long time until very recently, actually. It wasn't too well marketed, at least on my end. I know you had mentioned you saw it as a trailer. I but... got it as a trailer for 
I got it as a trailer for Ready or Not a couple of weeks ago, and I, I actually wasn't familiar with the novelization of uh, Dr. Sleep, and so as he's looking at the the various writings on his chalkboard, I kept thinking, I was like, that's very Shining-esque, and then they wrote Red Rum, and I was like, okay, so I guess it is The Shining, and then I uh, I did a little bit more research about it, and came to the realization that it is based on a novel that again he wrote many years later but i don't know like you said i it hasn't been super well marketed yet certainly not as well marketed as it was it being such a big blockbuster thing but it's it's been a busy year for stephen king i wonder if uh who produced this i believe it's universal produced this i wonder if they're realizing that they can't compete in terms of like the MCU. So they're trying to create the Stephen King cinematic universe, which could be a thing because (laughs) I think Stephen King, I don't know about all of his works, but generally speaking, most of his works, even I believe even the dark tower series, which is actually not really a horror. It's more of a dystopian sci-fi fantasy kind of thing. If you're not familiar, it's, it's very interesting, but I believe all of his uh, novels take place within the same universe or at least multiverse so they all could theoretically live together and i don't think there would necessarily be crossover because these are all based on novels and there's not hugely amount of crossover in his novels but i don't know i'm i'm interested to see if universal takes the approach of recognizing that they can't beat the mcu so they'll try for a horror cinematic universe and maybe do better than you know annabelle or the, the mummy whatever they were going to call that cinematic universe it was the dark cinematic universe and that is that what it was failed miserably do you, you can't hear me rolling my eyes but i am <laughs> yeah if you listen closely to your podcast you might hear that do keep this in mind though this idea of a cinematic universe because i think we're going to touch on this in the review part itself yeah absolutely but we'll see if that happens uh maybe when dr sleep comes out november 8th of this year but all right, Jacob, we've been we've been vamping for long enough. Let's let's get out of the segment and then get on into what people are really here for, our review of It Chapter 2. Here we are, your feature presentation, which again this week is It Chapter 2. I keep calling it It 2, but I guess technically speaking, it's It colon chapter 2. Um <laughs> It's not movie it also. Dir- yeah, exactly. Uh, a movie directed by Andrew Muschietti. I'm ho- I hope I'm saying his last name correctly. Uh, he also directed the first It film and additionally directed Mama back in, I want to say like 2013, around then, which also starred Jessica Chastain. So the two have had some work together. And to that end, Jessica Chastain stars as, or I mean, not stars. There's a lot of people. It's hard to call anybody a star when there's an like a six or seven person ensemble cast but jessica chastain plays uh beverly marsh james mcavoy plays bill denborough bill Hader plays richie tozer isaiah mustafa plays mike canlan jay ryan plays ben hanscom james rascone plays eddie kasprak andy bean plays stanley uris bill skarsgård plays pennywise there are other actors that play voices and various other things for the different physicalities and iterations of it Teach Grant plays Henry Bowers, who is the teach uh, you what? Te- ha, who is uh the <laughs> the bully? And I of note, all of these uh, actors obviously play the adult versions of these characters. The children uh, actors, while still in this film, were much more prevalent in the first one, so we're not focusing on them. Although they 
all did a pretty good job, all things considered. Um, budget for this movie from Warner Brothers, who is also doing Dr. Sleep, a correction to the previous segment. The budget for this movie is somewhere between 60 and $80 million. The reporting on that has been a little bit sketchy, and there is no post credit scene, so I know some people are wondering, well, is there going to be an It Chapter 3? And it does not appear that there is going to be based on the post credit scene life. Jacob, what'd you think about it? You were way more excited to see this than me. I didn't really want to see this. <laughs> I was very excited, and it's unfortunate because... I don't want to say I was let down, but if you're expecting this movie to be exceptionally scary, I'm just going to say right off the bat, it is not that bad, especially if you're a horror buff. But Grant, you kind of mentioned that too, and you're kind of a, a weenie when it comes to that. Well, I would, as a not self-described weenie, but something like that. Yeah, it wasn't, maybe as I've grown older, I've just become desensitized to it, but it wasn't that bad. There was only one part that made me jump, and it was actually pretty much right at the beginning um, without spoiling it. Most of it was pretty well choreographed in terms of music and tonal cues, where if you have your ears plugged, you're actually probably going to be more scared because you can't hear these cues coming up or the the things that they sometimes tend to do in movies where the sound kind of swells and then cuts out for a second. And when it cuts out, you're like, oh, something's going to jump out and scream because obviously. I, I, I wonder almost if they cut back on the scares in this and in, in the original one, because I know that was a complaint a lot of people had about the It Chapter 1 was that it was not particularly scary or not as scary as it could have been. I wonder if Warner Brothers cut down on the scares because they wanted this to be a more mainstream movie like we've talked about in you know various industry talk segments horror movies don't tend to do as well and I think that's partly because there are people like me who aren't horror fans that will not go to see it versus people that might not necessarily be superhero fans that will go to see Endgame or go see one of the MCU movies whereas horror is much more polarizing so I'm wondering if they brought that down a little bit in hopes of getting more people into the theater. Oh, no doubt. It's And it did very well. It Chapter 1 did exceptionally well for an R-rated horror film. Unbelievably well, actually. So their formula it was sort of repeated here. Uh, but I would say it probably took a step back from the original remake. Because even though that wasn't as scary, it still had a lot of decent moments. And it was just... The, the child actors are really quite good. I'm actually impressed. They might have done better than the adult cast for the most part. That being said, I wonder if part of the step back and part of my disappointment is this movie relies a lot on CGI scares rather than practical effects, and the CGI just isn't quite as good as you would expect for the budget and the scale and scope of this film. Yeah, it wasn't great. They did do some pretty interesting practical effects without trying to dance around this point because I think it's interesting enough to talk about here without trying to spoil anything. This scene, and as soon as I start talking about it, you'll know the one, and if anybody's seen the film, they'll know the one. This scene actually, by volume, has the most blood in a single scene in any horror movie ever. They actually had a tank rigged up for the scene in particular, 
And on the side of the tank, they put like gaffer's tape at different um, heights for different measurements. And they wrote other movies where it's like, I think they had one for like Alien and Evil Dead. And then at the very top where it was filled to, they wrote It Chapter 2. Because this has the most blood in any horror movie in a single scene, which I guess the uh, special effects and practical effects team were really excited about. Um, which I thought was interesting, weird. It, it was very fascinating to hear about in some of the interviews. But t- to your point, yeah, the CGI wasn't wasn't great. It was inconsistent. Some parts it felt fine, but sometimes, depending on who it was interacting with, it it didn't feel as good. However, Bill Skarsgård's practical effect was pretty good, which I don't know if you knew this. His eye, how he makes his eyes go in two different directions, that's that's him. He can literally do that. And there's a, there's a funny picture, I, I don't know if it's true, uh, going around the internet where the first time Skarsgård showed Bill Hader that he could do that on set, it freaked Hader out so much that he ran away. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a pretty funny set of pictures of that. And uh, But but it is true that that is actually practical, that Bill Skarsgård knows how to do that, which is kind of insane. Yeah, he's actually quite talented, especially facially, because he also does that smile, that Pennywise smile. And there's oh, actually a hashtag challenge going around. Yeah, so that little thing where he cups his lip at the bottom and he like looks forward with his eyes in different directions that's actually something he can do um so that paired with his voice which sometimes sounds like winnie the pooh but sometimes is scary makes for a pretty interesting character so i think Skarsgård's one of the treasures of this movie and in general i thought the cast was it was a star-studded cast and i think the two that carried it the most were bill Hader actually and james mcavoy but I think McAvoy is one of the best actors of this generation, so that's not too surprising. Uh, Hader was actually the most pleasant surprise in this movie. Yeah, I'd seen for me. Bill Hader in some other dramatic roles, like if you've ever watched him in Barry in particular. And then Trainwreck isn't a role quite like this, but it's a little bit more of a serious role. I mean, still comedic, but not SNL kind of funny. So I wasn't super surprised but it was interesting to see him in this film and of note the actor the reason that he got this part apparently so he says is that the actor that played Richie as a child was asked who do you want to play the adult you in the next film you know Finn Wolfhart being a uh, kind of a star right now given Stranger Things and he said Bill Hader and so Andy the director called Bill Hader and said hey Finn wants you to play adult him in the movie so you're in. <laughs> I did not know that story. That's exceptionally funny because he was actually well cast for Finn Wolfhard. I, I agree. As an adult. I, I think I would say I agree with you that I, I felt like all of the adult characters were cast pretty well. They looked like their children counterparts. And from what I was able to discern, they're fairly consistent with their useful counterparts. Although I agree with you. I wasn't blown away by um, some of the acting performances, Chastain's and Mustafa's in particular and i can't tell if it was their performances that i didn't like or if i just felt like they weren't given much to work with i know that there's been some i guess you could call it controversy over the hand that beverly was kind of dealt in these movies she was made to feel kind of like a damsel in distress sometimes kind of like an object of desire at others versus the kind of badass that she can be so I'm not I'm I'm lukewarm on their performances. I'm not sure again if it was them in particular or if it was just the script that they were given. But it, speaking to 
how I was able to tell they were consistent with their youthful counterparts. I was fairly impressed. Like I said, I, I actually have not seen the first it it chapter one and particularly because i like i said i'm not a fan of horror or stephen king but i it was actually fairly easy for me to understand the plight of each of the individual characters because of course they all have different backstories and i i could understand the dynamic of the group at large i mean the idea of the movie is fairly well projected in the trailers and in everything but understanding each of the characters specifically and what their motivations were as adults which was directed by their motivations and what happened to them as kids uh it was actually fairly easy to understand and the flashbacks were sometimes seemingly out of place but it allowed for newcomers to kind of understand the plot while i assume deepening the comprehension of the viewers who are already familiar with the story i i don't know you'll have to answer this for me i imagine that none of those flashbacks were of anything that happened in the first film right it was just additional uh, additional backstory that you get almost entirely some of it was, I believe, uh, at least like glimpses of the past movie, but yeah, f- for the most part. And it actually w- was funny because a lot of these characters had gone through puberty and grown a lot over the last two years. So they had to de-age 14-year-old children C- with CGI um, just to, to make sure it fit because there was a lot of interplay with the past. And that's actually something I talk about in the spoiler segment, uh, those the use of flashbacks. But it does try to make a good play off of the past, not only to help the audience that hasn't seen the first one know what's going on, and also to help you remember who these characters are. It also is designed to fill in gaps in knowledge and things that were in the book that they... It's almost like an exposition indirect exposition element but it's a lot better than narration so that's the purpose it serves it does make the movie go on a little bit more it is a long movie yeah so if you don't know it's almost three hours long go to the bathroom get some popcorn if you want yeah it's it's a long movie and it feels long it's not necessarily a bad thing i feel like generally most of the scenes that they had in there and most of the plot threads that they follow did need to be in there to complete the story and i mean when your when your source material is almost 1200 pages it's kind <laughs> of hard to tell the story in less than about six hours um and i mean but to that end too some of it is also the fact that this movie is somewhat of a love letter to the book it was trying to distance itself from the original work in terms of some of the plot points that it took and but also pay homage to to its source material which was uh interesting and led to kind of tonal shifts but i you have to respect the fact that they recognized the source material and wanted to appreciate it that's something i did enjoy there is a lot of flashbacks that resemble scenes in the book and also there's easter eggs that we'll dive into in the spoiler section and something i also respect so there was no end credit scene to set up in it chapter three this is something I particularly had speculated about because of an interview or two, but it does not seem like they're going to make a sequel to this, and I can respect that. So they went with a longer movie. They weren't splitting this into two different films. They're not going to try to make an It cinematic universe. It seems like they're done after this, and it almost becomes full circle because it appears every, was it 27 years? Yep. And the original released in 1990, and the 
beginning of this franchise was in 2017, exactly 27 years later. So this kind of completes that story that maybe by happenstance, maybe on purpose, was perfectly in line with how often Pennywise shows up. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, before we get to all the critical reviews, because this is a spoiler-free section, I want to give quick trigger warnings for anybody that is thinking about seeing this. I mean, I think a lot of this probably goes without saying, um, but there is violence in this movie. There is a lot of blood and a couple different parts, and there's specifically violence against and the murder of children, which if you're at all familiar with the franchise i think that probably comes as no surprise but <laughs> i figured i should put it out there there's violence against women um like real violence against women not like fictionalized violence against women if that makes sense not not like oh it terrorizes jessica chastain because yes obviously but you know there's domestic abuse kind of things also slight nudity at a couple different parts i guess you could call it we'll get more into that in the <laughs> spoiler section but i uh, just figured i should put that out there but with that jacob how did this do what, what was the critical reception for this movie like the reviews were mixed depending on the source the audience tend to favor this movie a lot more if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave it a, well, the aggregation is a 64%. And if you look at the audience, it's an 80%. So a lot more of the audience found this movie favorable than the critics. Looking at somewhat raw averages from Metacritic, although they're not truly raw, you get a 58 from critics and a 6.7 from the audience. That being said, decent numbers for a horror film, and that's further supported by the cinema score rating which was a b plus again not too bad especially for a movie that's a little bit more in the horror genre than perhaps two other horror-ish movies we saw this summer in ready or not in midsummer overall people seem to like it and critics at least didn't seem to hate it if i were to give my own rating of this movie i would probably lean more toward the critics side of things i was so excited coming in this movie came out on thursday of uh that was september 5th which was also the first day of the nfl season where my favorite team the bears played the rivals the packers and they lost and i feel like i almost lost watching it chapter two it wasn't a terrible movie by any means just not the horror movie i expected based on the trailers so I'm going to give this movie a 6 out of 10. Well, what's interesting is is that I think part of our ratings are actually based on our preconceived notions. Expectations. Yeah, in this particular one. Because I'm actually, me, not being the horror guy, I'm actually going to rate it a 7, higher than you. Because again, objectively, I felt like it did a good job of telling the story. The, the, the story itself. There are some issues that I take with the storytelling, again, and some issues that I take with, I, I think it's the writing or maybe it's the performance. But it kept the universe consistent. Again, not super scary. Creepy enough at parts. The characters were, again, fairly consistent. And it did allow for a pretty good on-ramp for people that hadn't seen the first film, which is a really good place to be as a sequel. It's very hard to pull in new people as a sequel because most people are going to say, oh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to go see that. I haven't seen the first one. I'll have no idea what's going on, which to some degree is true. But again, they do a very, very good job of bringing anybody in that hasn't seen the first one and allowing them to understand what's going on. And for that reason, I felt like I 
I couldn't go any lower than a 7, although for a number of the issues that it had, I don't feel like I could go much higher than a 7 either. Fair, and what better way to start this spoiler review section than to warn you that if you have not seen this movie, pause. you can pause this podcast right now. It's still going to be here. If your phone dies, you can even pick it back up and start it at the exact point that I'm talking. So pause the review. Go to your nearest AMC or Harkins or whatever your movie theater is. Give them 10 to $15 and come back and see what our thoughts were to see if they lined up. Or if you don't care about spoilers, stick around and we'll tell you why we gave it a 6 and a 7 respectively. Okay, Jacob, I'm going to open this week because I want to just real quick, I've got a chart here that you can probably see in our notes. I just want to run through some differences between the book and the movie really quick. As as a forewarning, I also haven't read the book, but I know how to read Wikipedia. So I, I just want to get these out there just so that um, it's clear in case anybody was wondering how it varies from the source material and uh, a couple of other things. So in the book, no one runs into Henry Bowers, the bully who escapes from the uh, asylum for, with the help of it, much like in the film. Until he attacks Mike at the library, um, where Mike is injured and sent to a hospital and Henry escapes. Henry later attacks Eddie and breaks his arm, but he's killed in that fight. In the movie, it's reversed, where Henry, well, sort of, where Henry attacks Eddie in his hotel room, uh, stabbing him in the cheek with his uh, pocket knife before escaping and attacking Mike in the library, where Henry is killed and Mike suffers effectively no injuries. Like, in, in the book, Mike isn't actually there for the final battle with it because he is in a hospital at the time. Uh, so it, that's actually a kind of a big deviation from the novel. Additionally, in the book, Bill's wife and Beverly's husband chase after them uh, into Derry to try and save or help and kill them respectively. You know, Bill's wife is trying to help Bill and Beverly's husband is trying to kill her because they did have an altercation similar to that in the film. That was a rough scene in the movie. The Beverly leaving for Derry. Yeah. Bill's wife actually ends up getting kidnapped by Bev's husband, who has been kind of taken over by it, similar to um, Henry. And they're both taken to its lair. The wife becomes catatonic after looking at the deadlights, and the husband just drops dead at the sight of it, apparently, conveniently. And Bill's wife is finally awoken after the final battle when Bill takes her for a ride on Silver. A little bit odd, but again, in the film, these characters are primarily ignored. They're shown at the beginning and then effectively never again. I mean, they're, they're accurate in that Bill's wife in both the novel and in the film are an actress and Bev's husband is abusive, but they just don't play into the plot at all in the movie. Again, in the novel, while searching for the relics and trying to restore their memories as adult, Richie is attacked by a Paul Bunyan statue, Ben is attacked by a Dracula, and Beverly is attacked by the witch from Hansel and Gretel, while in the movie... Richie is attacked by the statue as a child, and in as an adult, he's just chased by Pennywise and handed the flyer to his own funeral. Ben isn't chased at all, he just remembers a youthful encounter with it. And Beverly is attacked by that monstrous grandmother, who's, that's the most of the nudity that I was talking about, which was a bizarre scene, and I know you have thoughts about that that we will get to uh, here in a moment. Mm-hmm. Also in the novel, it laid eggs in its lair, because apparently it can do that, which <laughs> uh, Ben stays back rather than going into the final battle to destroy the eggs to make sure that uh, there's no more its. That was never mentioned at all in the film, not even touched on. 
in the novel, when the losers enter its lair at the end, it is taken the form of a giant spider, which they sort of touch on in the movie. You know, Pennywise, or it, I guess, takes on a Pennywise-esque spider thing, kind of, which I think was meant to be a nod to the novel while keeping... Uh, I mean, I think they just wanted Pennywise to be super recognizable. So rather than just having a giant spider, they wanted to keep his body on it. So yeah, interesting is what it is. And then in the novel to kill it, Ben or Bill rather uh, actually enters its body and locate and destroys its heart versus the losers in the movie, bringing it down to size by insulting it and then tearing out its heart and destroying it. I mean, the method for killing it is the same. However, the method for getting to its heart is a little bit different. So, I mean, there's definitely more um, inconsistencies between the novel and the movie. The lack of the giant mystical turtle that spit up the entire universe when it had a stomach ache is one. Although they do have a nod to it with a stuffed turtle on the desk when Ben goes back to the uh, school, which is interesting. You took away one of my most excited talking points. I noticed that in the movie and i was like hey it's the magical turtle that vomited up the universe oh yeah then, sorry yeah that's nah, all right it, it was it was interesting because like i said the novel or the movie rather is in a lot of ways a love letter to the novel which i respect but there were some inconsistencies and for better or worse i did just want to point them out again like i said source materials 1200 pages they definitely couldn't include everything so i don't <laughs> i i don't bemoan too much of that but we hit on it briefly talk to me you had not issue with the grandmother scene with beverly but i know you wanted to talk about it i just really felt passionately because it was such an arousing no um (laughs) i think that that was one of the best scenes in the movie because it was so weird and they did such a disservice showing that entire scene up until the point where the terrible CGI kicks in. Yeah. That when it happened in the theater, I was almost annoyed. But when I saw the trailer for that, and even multiple times, it was scary. Because you had not only the elongated pause of the grandma, which is a horror element in that you maybe you're waiting for a jump scare, and then she's just sitting there for several seconds, and then goes back into talking. There's an uncanny valley of her unnatural body movements in the background that you might not even see if you're not paying great attention to. It it, it was just <laughs> a great scene for a trailer, but I feel like they could have done just as well never showing even a clip from that scene, and it would have been a lot more shocking and scary. It probably would have bumped the movie up a half or a full point in my mind. Yeah, what's interesting is that in some of the interviews I listened to with Jessica Chastain, she actually indicated a very similar thing, that she was surprised that they used that as the trailer and a little bit disappointed because, yeah, she felt like they're, they could have done a lot more with it had they not made that the trailer. It's almost like you're showing your royal flush and then asking people to call your bet i was hoping that maybe this was just any scene in the movie that could have been replaced in terms of terror or creepiness but it was really one of the scariest and creepiest parts of the movie so i was just a little bit let down by that i don't love when trailers reveal a lot of the movie anyway which is part of the reason i at least respect the marvel cinematic universe as of late because their trailers are very discreet they don't reveal much about anything. Whereas for this movie, a, a pretty good chunk, at least at an important part of the film, I also wasn't sure, and this could be due to my ignorance of not reading the book, was was she 
Pennywise? Or were they two separate mystical beings? Like daughter and yeah, father? Yeah, I I mean, she's not Pennywise. She she is it. Pennywise is just one of the forms that it takes because it is, again, like the intergalactic stellar or intergalactic yeah. being. So, I, the, okay, first of all, l- let me back up again. Stephen King, if you haven't read him, is is a bit weird. So in the novel, again, 1,200 pages where it follows them as children and then them as adults. But like somewhere in the middle of that, it talks directly to the reader and sort of explains what it is. Again, this sort of cosmic being and brags a little bit about how it's so smart and like it knows everything in the universe and da 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 da. And it's, it's very bizarre. It does give a little bit of context for why it preys specifically on children, which is interesting. Um, It's because it likes to scare its victims, which it says is akin to salting the meat. And it finds that... uh, Yeah, marinating them in fear. Right. And it it found that children's uh, fears are easier to materialize because, you know, when you're a kid, you're scared of zombies or werewolves or whatever versus... When you're an adult, your fears generally tend to be a little bit more abstract or your anxieties, and it found it harder to materialize those and and make adults feel as scared, which is why it generally tended to prey on children, which was kind of interesting. Interesting, and something this movie's... The movie's, for better or worse, left out some things from the book. I think leaving out the magical vomiting turtle is a great thing to leave out, because it's so bizarre. It takes away the element of this turtle also protecting this group of kids specifically in some way. That's partially why they've escaped death, also because he is marinating them and and he's connected to these kids. Also, they left out the child gangbang at the end of the first movie, and I thought that was probably a good idea as well. Um, So I, I don't mind the divergence from the book. I wish it diverged a little bit more from the trailer. Another scene in the movie that had a similar element to the trailer, the grandma trailer, but did pretty well for me was the scene where that girl who had the birthmark on her face and uh, it said, I can sweep that away on the count of three. And he said, one, two, and there was a very long pause. And then she said, what about three? And then he, he there's the jump scare. Yeah. I thought that was maybe one of the scarier, better elements of the film. Besides that, in the very beginning where the gay gentleman, where Pennywise is first introduced again. I don't know if that was the referent for you when you said you jumped in the beginning. Uh, but when he first bit into his chest, that was a little bit scary, I thought. Or not scary, but shock. Like it was a, a good, a well-timed jump scare. Uh, yeah, it, it was definitely shocking. No, the thing that actually got me is when we had the flashback of uh henry coming up out of the water because there was because again like to me a lot of cues are when there's sound or whatever and the sound cuts out and then you get something you had the sound of the water the whole time and so the immediate just him jumping out gasping for air and the music crescendo all at once that that actually nothing that was really particularly scary it just made me jump because i wasn't expecting it because i was also you know looking through a a gaggle of dead children's limbs <laughs> the, the scene you touched on though i yeah i actually take small issue with not the not the opening scene the opening scene is interesting and it's actually uh in reference to the book just just read the wikipedia article i, I can't keep going through all of these <laughs> um but the scene with the little girl while i agree with you had a good scare on it bothered me because it did feel like one of the scenes that could have been left out a little bit 
only because it came in a weird place where everybody was sort of looking for their relics or their artifacts, whatever you want to call them. And then it felt like there was this scene with this girl that we saw at the beginning of the movie, and we can tell it's her because of the um, the birthmark on her face, and she has the little cow or whatever it was that the guy at the beginning gives to her. And so we kind of have a connection with her, but we don't have much of an emotional connection with her. So the scene doesn't have a lot of emotional connection except for, oh yeah, Pennywise eats kids. I, I had forgotten, but how do you forget that? And that feels like that was the whole purpose of that scene is to be like, oh yeah, Pennywise is still around and he's still feeding and he's still like a bad dude. And I'm like, yeah, we know you could have left that yeah. out. <laughs> they didn't really show that since the beginning of the first movie too, uh, this aimless kid eating scene. And I, I was especially annoyed because she left and her mom just didn't see her at all at this local baseball game. It made, I mean, I, I took issue with just the fact that she got under the bleachers problem free uh, and where she went, like why she went where she did. I was going to say, can we just talk about the fact that apparently parents in Derry could not care less about their kids? Like, and nobody in Derry could care about violence, apparently, because there's a kid that literally gets bit in half in a funhouse and Bill is able to walk out angrily and no kid or adult or anyone comes tearing out screaming about how there's half a body or blood everywhere because there's even if pennywise eats the whole body there's still blood up half of the wall and apparently a broken like plastic pane so that was a weird oh yeah and his dna is everywhere yeah he's definitely in jail in the real world weird stuff and i mean again the effects that you touched on were okay like in that scene it was fine i'm not actually sure if that blood spray was practical or not that one seemed fine the the scene i was talking about if you're not aware is the beverly uh, scene at yeah, the end in the stall yeah the bathroom stall which had a, a again you were talking about easter eggs and i'm going to steal another one from you unless you want to get it here first in the interest of of thievery you can have it <laughs> fair enough the the shining reference there where it's i think it's young henry even that sticks his face in and says here's johnny which was kind of again clever love letter to stephen king Mm -hmm. but otherwise for the effects like they were okay but not as good as i would have hoped i mean granted this isn't you know the lion king but it's still probably around a 70 million dollar budget and granted it was a star-studded cast so some of it had to go to that but like they bordered on cartoony at times, and that mirrored some of the beats of the film as well. Like, the scary door scene comes to mind. Yeah. It, it was funny, and it was good comic relief. Oh, sorry. That jump in. I was just going to say, the fortune cookie scene was an early one, where these CGI looked really bad. And to me, they looked really bad. It took me out of the film, because I wasn't scared at all. I was like, these things look like Pokemon Go <laughs> CGI creations of some kind. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the scary door scene in particular, again, for me was... It, it was funny, which is fine, but at the climax of a film, you don't need a beat for humor in this kind of film, and I take a little bit of issue with the climax anyway, which I will get to, but it was particularly frustrating for me because it felt like they wanted to use Bill Hader almost only as comic relief, and they could totally do that without putting him into situations like that. Like, in the dinner scene at the beginning, he's cracking jokes, and, like, that felt very much like Richie. Like, that was a good place to do it. That was a good place to let out his humor and to use this generally comedic actor to that end but it sort of felt like they put him in the scary door scene like oh yeah this is funny he's a funny guy let's let's put him together and they didn't give him the opportunity to flex his dramatic muscle quite as much as they could have at least not as much as some of the other actors which again is disappointing because he's pretty good at it um I, i mean and again with that scene in particular it's like 
I guess you could argue that it's because it was torturing all of them by putting them through like a surrealist funhouse kind of thing. But there were times where like the juxtaposition could kind of give you whiplash where you're like, it's scary, it's funny, it's scary, it's funny, and whatever. I, I, I don't know. That scene in particular was just kind of meh to me. And the effects in general were also middling. I mean, there were times where it looked totally fine. Like I said, like some of the scenes where Pennywise is floating around on the balloons look totally fine and believable. And then there were other ones where it just kind of looked atrocious. That was almost my biggest gripe with this movie is the use of Bill Hader for multiple reasons. I had alluded to this earlier of this tonal inconsistency in the film where it's jumping between funny and scary. And that was my exact gripe with the first film. I did enjoy it, but it wasn't scary because it was so funny. Same problem here, but Bill Hader's range is actually quite impressive. And in the film, he pay, plays a stand-up comedian, so very on the nose there, because he was definitely primarily used as a comic relief character. But I thought his best moments in this movie were actually his emotional ones. He, he, had, he has a very convincing style of acting, and I was expecting him to be used as comic relief coming in, so I was moderately impressed at his ability to act in both domains. But the writing or the movie itself just really didn't take full advantage of him. It seemed like it tried to let the other characters carry that burden. And outside of McAvoy, which again, I've said earlier in my opinion, is one of the best actors nowadays anyway, they couldn't quite carry that load. The child actors almost outacted people or they had better lines suited for their age. I wasn't quite sure. It was this feeling inside of me though that just this movie could have been doing so much more if it tried to get a more consistent tone or the writing was better suited for the star cast that it had my other big gripe with this movie probably i just felt i liked the flashbacks but it was actually one step behind because when it first introduced these characters i was like man they should have really flashed back to what these characters looked like as children (laughs) Because I'm struggling to remember who they were. And then after the dinner scene, it started doing that. And I was like, oh, it would have been so much better if you had done this like 10 minutes sooner. At least like a three second clip of who this person was. Outside of Beverly, it wasn't always easy to tell. Yeah. I mean, again, I can't comment too heavily on that. I thought it was fine because I hadn't seen the first one. But it's interesting to hear. It probably helped you. Yeah, not not knowing who they were going in, because then when the flashbacks came, it was welcome. But the movie almost had a prerequisite that if you've seen the movie, you should remember who they are. But if you haven't seen it, don't worry, we got your back eventually. I It was, it was weird, like by being impoverished, you were better off, uh, at least to start. Uh, that was a small gripe I had, but I... Overall, the use of flashbacks I thought was was pretty good, even if it was a little bit jumpy at times. I I guess we've talked about this dinner scene already, but not really the logic behind it, because these characters had left their respective situations in life. They left their careers or their family for a period of time to go eat dinner with old friends because of some vague commitment because they cut way too deep with glass for no reason uh and and nobody cared nobody asked why they were there 
until like the dinner was almost over. And then by the time they had asked is when Pennywise started having his fun. It started having its fun. So I was just the whole time they were having this super fun dinner scene. I was like, why are you here? I know why you're here, but you don't apparently. And you're really shocked when you find out you're not here just to have dinner. When you were vomiting and crashing cars when this call happened. I I sound like I'm tearing into it a little bit. It's just because there are certain things that didn't sit well with me. The other one was the love triangle. That is between Beverly, Bill, and Ben. It didn't have emotional play and there was no exploration of Beverly's feelings of Ben until she found out that in middle school he wrote her a letter. And he probably had dirty thoughts about her. And apparently that's love now. And she's no longer into Bill. There was no exploration of that. It was so lazily done. There was no payoff. Bill kissed Beverly. So is he not good with his wife? There was no exploration of that. He's alone at the end. Did he get a divorce? Uh, I don't know. There was, I don't want to say it was lazy writing, but it just left a lot of questions, and it didn't care to answer them. It, it just wanted you to have that payoff. Uh, oh, Ben and Beverly are together. How romantic. They kiss underwater, which was so gross. Yeah, it was a bit bizarre. But moving into something really quick that I did like, and I, I'm guessing you did too. I, I'm wondering if Stephen King, if they are going to make a Stephen King cinematic universe, is if he's going to try and be the next Stan Lee, because that cameo was really hilarious and i felt like i was like i recognized who he was before he put the book down and i don't know if anybody else in my theater did and i can't imagine that they did because i was the only one that was cracking up about it immediately and throughout that scene because his disinterest in bill as a writer was just hilarious to me the the only issue that i take is that it was in a scene that wasn't specifically necessary i mean i guess it was sort of relevant for bill to get silver back to remember some of his childhood or whatever but the scene at large wasn't super necessary and there were a number of scenes that basically only served to mirror scenes in the book and were kind of out of place in the film like the entirety of the henry storyline for example probably probably could have been left out because effectively nothing in the entire film would have changed except for a scar on eddie's cheek and also when we're while we're on the topic of the eddie or the henry storyline and the cgi thing what was up with that whole like zombie thing that I, I know is supposed to be one of Henry's buddies that it killed, but that just looked dumb, cartoony. Like you, you told me earlier, like 80s horror comedy movie, like when it's driving the car. What the hell was that? Yeah, pretty much. It was so out of place and it it made me think this movie actually took place in the 80s. I, I don't know. It was it was such a cringy scene i want to say i think they wanted to play it off as funny but to me it was just like oh my gosh i just watched a skeleton with a i think he had a hat i don't remember entirely but it was clearly out of a horror comedy film yeah it, it was weird but anyway for the stephen king scene there was a lot of humor in that scene and you know who's cracking jokes about mm-hmm. bill being a writer like oh big famous writer you got the money for it you can pay whatever i tell you to pay for this bike which you know obviously self-referential and similarly self-referential was saying that he didn't like the end of Bill's book, which was a joke throughout the movie, and also self-referential because uh, that's a lot of the critiques that King tends to get, is that 
I believe he said generally he doesn't diagram stories. He just kind of writes until he gets to the end. And so some people feel that his novels don't tend to end particularly well. And speaking of, I'm not sure how I felt about the end of this movie, or at least the climax. Like, the climax, in my mind, changed from a horror movie... Like, when they get into its lair, I guess I should say. It changed from a horror movie into, like, an Indiana Jones movie, I felt like. I didn't think about it like that, but that's a good way to put that. The climax in general, yeah, just how the movie concluded, I that's my probably my biggest point of conflict with this film. Uh, but elaborate more on the Indiana Jones point. I, I guess I just mean, like, maybe it was just me in particular, but I didn't find its final form, as it were, being the giant spider thing, particularly scary. And, you know, he's swiping around at them with these giant claws and whatnot. And again, there was the weird, goofy scene with the the scary, not scary at all, very scary doors, which almost is very Indiana Jones pulpy action movie where it's like, let's take a moment out for a joke, although mm-hmm. those are typically shorter. But I don't know, it, it felt like this could have been the ending of any action movie where the alien was a bad guy and it's a shape-shifting alien. It just didn't feel horrific at all. It was... The, I don't know. It just didn't feel like a horror payoff, which is kind of what you want from the climax of a horror movie, right? It just felt like, here's a bunch of action all of a sudden, which is fine, but again, tonally inconsistent. And inconsistent with Pennywise's abilities. If he was in a circular room with these people he could catch them instantly he wouldn't need to be this giant spider he could create a million spiders or have you know it just it didn't make so much sense so for them to be out running him and and really just diagramming their entire plan to defeat him the ultimate insult to uh story writing where they had talked about maybe this is too early to talk about the climax but you know, they said, oh, we're just going to make him feel smaller than he really is. And for this omniscient creature that apparently knows everything, to not only know everything, but to have your plan of defeat explicitly told to you and for it to work perfectly, I was rolling my eyes the entire time. And what's the message there? Bullying gets you what you want? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I I thought the same thing because, like I said, it was different in the novel and it sends an odd message here because... A lot of the film and and the novel to some degree too feels like the one of the central themes at least is when you grow up you learn to grow up in a number of different ways like you realize that the things you feared as a child were generally unfounded like I said you fear more physical things as a kid like zombies or werewolves or whatever and as you grow up you're like oh these aren't the things that I need to be afraid of. There's the John Mulaney joke about being afraid of quicksand as a kid. And then when you're older, like quicksand isn't a problem for me at all. It's a lot like that, really. And I mean, like you also, as you grow older, recognize the importance of standing up to bullies, in this case, both Henry Bowers and it. And yeah, like you said, the way that they beat him won by just talking about it basically to his face and it still works is kind of bizarre, but also like they just basically mock him for several minutes to bring him down to size which is an initially interesting concept when you look at it in terms of the from the bullying perspective where it's like one way to bring a bully down is to be like you know you're just scared or you're not so tough or anything like that but they're not doing that for the most part they're like oh clown you're a silly sad little clown like they're just mocking him like a bully would mock you so yeah exactly it felt like is it just saying that 
if someone bullies you, bully them back. I mean, the, the there was an interesting touch, like I said, when Mike says he's only as big as he, uh, or, or whoever says he's only as big as he thinks he is, and when Mike concludes the whole thing by noting at the end that he's simply a scared, beating heart kind of thing, which that was more interesting. And if they had kept that up the whole time where they're like, you're just a bully, you know, you're you're not so scary, you're not so big, things like that, they would have been different. I mean, very on the nose, to be fair. But again, it, it felt a lot like they were just bullying the bully, which is a weird message to send. <laughs> and they could have had that very interesting th- philosophical question, only as big as you think you are, you're just a beating heart, where Bill still goes into the body somehow. It could have been a lot more epic action-wise, finding some way to, you know, go inside of it's Pennywise and also just like, Oh, this fear that we think is so scary is just a beating heart. And it's as big as it thinks it is. Like you could have had such more payoff with logical sense and perhaps even action fulfillment. The, the climax just wasn't, wasn't super great. The emotional climax of Eddie's death was predictable, throws a spear and instantly turns around. Oh, he's dead. Clearly. Yeah. And, and that wasn't long before that that paid off. I mean, I'm I sound like I'm digging into it, and I just think it's because this movie could have been so much more than it was. I thought the first movie, although it wasn't super scary, was a pretty good film, and this felt like a regression. And be going beyond that, it felt like it had potential, and there were some pretty good scenes and potentially interesting themes, and it was touching on some interesting elements uh, it just didn't quite come together despite the two hour and 50 minute runtime yeah i mean again maybe i didn't feel as disappointed because i didn't see the first one i felt like it concluded the saga fairly well i guess it culminated it albeit the climax didn't work great i feel like the humanistic elements still seem to work pretty well the character's they, they did a pretty good job of, like I said, keeping characters consistent and keeping their interactions fun. And to to be fair, it is hard to manage an ensemble cast of, you know, six different characters who all have, you know, deep-seated PTSD because of this thing that happened in their childhood that they can't remember and they're slowly remembering. So the interactions there were generally pretty good. The world building was good. After the uh, the final fight with Pennywise, except for the very very end the falling action with the letter from stanley which is also in the book and although a bit of an odd ending i felt like the way that they wrapped up with all of them and they kind of brought it back together standing looking in the uh window and we see both the adult reflections of them and the children reflections of them i thought that that was a pretty cool way to wrap up the whole saga so again i don't think it was bad i thought it did a pretty good job it had some very obvious flaws clearly but generally speaking, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought it would, especially coming from somebody that doesn't like horror films. And I'm not saying by any means that this is the worst movie I've seen this summer because it was an entertaining movie. And despite its pretty long runtime that sometimes dragged on, it it used that time well. It answered a lot of questions that the first movie brought up, that the book contained and explained. So it, it wasn't a terrible movie. I just... You know, it, with such a great cast and such great marketing, phenomenal trailers, uh, you had, again, a, a long scene as the opening trailer and then a more traditional trailer showing 
childhood to adult, this maybe coming of age of of these characters. And I do respect that it's done, that they're not going to bring it back. It's probably the best Stephen King movie I've seen so far this year. It was better than the Pet Cemetery remake. I guess the verdict's still out on Doctor Sleep. So if you if you're still listening and you haven't seen this, don't think that I didn't like it. I I just wish that the marketing department was less excellent, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I think that about sums it up. I mean, it it could have been a lot better for what it was, but that said, it was definitely an enjoyable film. And with that, we're running a little bit long. So, Jacob, thank you for another great week. If people want to get in touch with you and tell you about the other little things that we missed in the movie, like that was actually a reference to it, and that was a reference to another Stephen King novel. How can they get in touch with you? If you thought everything I said was nonsense and you want to yell at me, or you want to say, you know what, you provided some good insight, both of those are totally okay. You can reach me on Twitter at PWG Jacob. That's the letters P W G J A C O B. Mention me in a tweet, DM me. I'll get back to you because I want to hear what you have to say. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can also get in touch with me on Twitter at PWG Grant. That is P-W-G-G-R-A-N-T. If you want to contact the podcast at large, feel free to email us at 35millimeterpod at gmail.com. That is 35mmpod at gmail.com. Interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, If there's any movies that you want to recommend that we review, uh, anything you want us to talk about in the industry talk segment, which... They're coming. Uh, It's taken us a little bit of time for some production on those, but they are coming. We'd love to hear from you. And just a reminder, next week, instead of trailers, we're actually going to be doing our quarterly look back where we look back at all of the movies and scores that we have given thus far this year. Going to talk about them briefly, see if we want to change any scores, because uh, sometimes we get it wrong or sometimes we change our mind. But with that, Jacob, thank you for another great week. And thanks to all of our listeners for hanging out with us for so long. We'll see everybody next week. 35mm Perspective is a Players with Game production. All opinions within the podcast are our own. Michael Campos is our composer. All rights reserved. Ha ha ha.